It's a bad sign when it's humming and I haven't said anything. <laughs> All right. Good morning, everyone. <laughs> I always start the same way. But uh, it, it's, it's for a reason, I guess, because I really, I, I get so nervous coming up to these things and then I get up here and I look out at everybody and I'm always, I always feel such a happiness from it. So I'm glad, again, to be able to, to share time with you. This, uh, this lecture in particular, if you haven't is read, is called Vedantic Feminism. And you're, uh, this is actually my practice run. There's a little bit of a, a story. And I think if I knew all the details, it would be a weird story. <laughs> I somehow got an invitation to speak this afternoon at George Washington University here, or in Fairfax, I guess it is, on women's, or DC, uh oh, the, the one I'm going to is in Fairfax. <laughs> what is? Oh, George Mason. Okay, there. Okay, <laughs> that, that was almost an emergency. So um, somehow uh, I have been asked to speak on women's empowerment at uh, a seminar down there, and uh, I, I have no idea how that could have happened. Uh, without there being some very odd story behind it. I can only imagine some list of potential speakers that must have been like 95 names long before they got to me here. I was like, <laughs> how is that possible? Because I, I frankly know nothing uh, about, uh, about, this, about these issues aside from uh, growing up and uh, paying a little bit of attention here and there in this world. So I've done a lot of reading this week. Um, of Swamiji and, and Holy Mother and, uh, and pondering, too, kind of these, uh, these ideals. So it's going to be a fun lecture. And the reason I'm telling you that it's a run-through is so that you will be very vocal, if, uh, especially uh, the women folk, that you'll be very vocal with me if I say something that's, uh, that's not helpful or that you think needs clarification or if there's some gaping hole that I leave in something that you think is important in, uh, that should be said this afternoon at a women's empowerment seminar, I would be uh, extremely grateful. And uh, if you felt really strongly about it, I'd be in full support of you coming up and just doing the lecture if you'd like. <laughs> so I'm going to start the same way, by, uh, by remembering the most important things for us as spiritual seekers, the three most important things. The first of which, from Takor, we learn is our sincerity and our earnestness uh, when we approach uh, our search for truth, our, our quest for who we are and what life is about, to be earnest and to be sincere in that. And uh, why? Because Takor says that if you're sincere and earnest, that God himself, herself, will take, take, take responsibility for bringing you forward. And if you take off in a wrong direction, uh, he'll take it upon himself to steer you in the right direction. So sincerity and earnestness is a commitment to each other and to ourselves this morning. The second one, of course, from Jesus when he was asked what was the most important thing in spiritual life, and he said to love God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as you love yourself. And uh, as always, I'm happy to announce we can do both those in one step in Vedanta by seeing God in each other and loving, and loving that dearly and honestly. So it's a commitment to love when we approach these things, these scriptures, these truths, this time together uh, every week and during the week. 
And then the third one uh, is, is again from, from Takor when he was throwing out, uh, you know, one of his practices was to throw out the ideas of these pairs of opposites, trying to realize that oneness of all things. And uh, he was sitting on the banks of the Ganga and literally just kind of in his mind conceiving of things and throwing them around. Here's your good and here's your bad. Mother, take them both and just give me pure love for you. And he came to truth and he went, uh, here's your truth. Then he uh, realized that Mother, he says, prevented him from being able to throw out truth and untruth, that truth is fundamental to that quest for that, that inner knowledge. And so it's a commitment for ourselves, for, for me, this morning to, to stay in that space, to space of, of telling the truth as we see it and understand it, and uh, to accept it inside if it's difficult, if it brings up difficult things about our character, about our life that, that might need some changing. So in honor of uh, women's empowerment, Vedantic feminism, I've changed my favorite poet for the day from Hafiz to St. Teresa of Avila, I'm going to start with her poem. She says, We bloomed in spring. Our bodies are the leaves of God. The apparent seasons of life and death our eyes can suffer. But our souls, dear, I will just say this forthright. They are God himself. We will never perish. That outlines really where I'm going to end up with this lecture. So that's a big spoiler right there. Now, oddly enough, Vivekananda was asked this same question. He was he was doing a Q&A session, and uh, uh, some some guy in the audience raised his hand and asked about uh, the the role of women or the the state of women in India. <laughs> and uh, Swamiji <laughs> Swamiji kind of gives him a kind of a little, I guess, corrective tap. He says, "So, you want to speak of women and uh, and not of philosophy." Okay, <laughs> and then he follows up and says, I must begin by saying that you have to bear with me a good deal because I belong to an order of people who, may, who never marry. So my knowledge of women in all their relations as mother, as wife, as daughter and sister must necessarily not be so complete as it may be with other men. So uh, that's part of the irony that I feel, you know, in having to, to lecture on <laughs> women's empowerment is I'm one of the least likely candidates of, of knowing anything about that. So uh, I'm chalking it up to, to the Divine Mother's sense of humor and, uh, and possibly uh, the fact that I might have something to learn in the area. So I'm bowling forward. So uh, Swamiji, after he makes that excuse, not excuse, but actually paints that reality saying, I'm not really the one to ask. Uh, I don't know that much about it. He says, the best I can do is put before you an ideal. And so he says, I will try to place before you the ideal. In each nation, man or woman represents an ideal consciously or unconsciously being worked out. The individual is the external expression of an ideal to be embodied. The collection of such individuals is the nation, which also represents a great ideal. And towards that, it is moving. And therefore, it is rightly assumed that to understand a nation, you must first understand its ideal for each nation refuses to be judged by any other standard than its own. <clears throat> I had this conversation at breakfast this morning. It, it didn't go great. I really was not able to make, to make any of the points that I really felt uh, about. I, I, and and part, of, part of approaching a conversation like this 
is, is having to deal with the fact that we have ideas and a whole lifetime of experiences and things that we've read and people we've heard. And during a conversation that's happening in real time, you're trying to take all of that and push it through this tiny hole in your face. <laughs> you know, you're, you're, you're one word at a time. It's like you're trying to put a whole life through your mouth. And, and you get one thing, one small idea adequately set up, and then suddenly the conversation turns and you have to do the same thing all over again while this one melts. And you have to then kind of come back and prop it up. And uh, uh, that's kind of... <laughs> The struggle in this conversation, really, how to take a huge uh, ideal like women's empowerment or, or women's rights or, or the state of women or Vedantic feminism and to try and actually in, in uh, well, this morning I get a whole hour. This afternoon I get a whopping 20 minutes to kind of to kind of build a structure that will actually stand there after you stop speaking and, and not just kind of melt and fall over. So we're starting down at the individual level because for us to talk about a big ideal is, is going to be uh, too much. Every person in this room probably has very unique ideas and very unique concepts of women's rights and women's empowerment uh, and how they pertain to a culture, to a country, to a city, <laughs> you know, and, and also the scope of that discussion. I mean, what are we talking about? You know, the politics of it, the laws of it, the socialization of it, the religion of it, you know, all these different aspects. So uh, I'm going to, to step in, in Swamiji's foot, foot uh, prints and uh, play it safe and go for individual ideals and go for uh, the context in which we can discuss uh, this, uh, these things. Because I don't think that it's proper for me to stand and say these are the answers and this is the way it is. What this is for all of us, and regardless of what the topic is, is a conversation Truth in this life, because we live in a relative world, is a conversation. It's a discussion, you know, as we both try and take this lifetime of learning and, and to, to force it through this very limited, this limited um, way of, of communicating. So I want to start with you thinking or determining yourself that I'm, well, you probably already have, obviously, but to determine what is your ideal of women in Vedanta or women in this country, since we'll start with that, because that's where we all are, though we're not all from there, which is part of why this conversation is going to be very varied and very interesting, because uh, you, can't, you can't come up with uh, too much more of a different ideal um, for women in, in culture, women in society, uh, than that one presented by India and that one presented by the, uh, the, the United States. And so it was very interesting in this time to watch uh, uh, Swamiji dance with that subject because he tries and, and to, to formulate the differences, the, the likenesses, and tries to bring them forward. So I want to do that, but I want to set up a nice, very comfortable arena for us to do it so that nobody needs to be offended, nobody needs to be hurt or feel like uh, they're not being hurt or that I'm saying something contrary to what they might believe. This is a conversation, and it's one I'm interested in having long beyond this lecture today uh, uh, in regards especially to our center and uh, to, to what we are about as a common, uh, a common entity, a common ideal. So think about, take the morning, take the time to, to contemplate deeply what is the ideal. Swamiji says that every one of us uh, is, is an, an ideal being worked out that you are an ideal of God, 
one one, one aspect of God that's being worked out in the life that you live. You know, that, that, that all together, the sum total is the whole face of God. So each one of us, maybe it's just a hair <laughs> in there. But to consider your ideal, what is it that your life is about as a woman? I'm going to broaden it out even as a man in relationship to women and to relationship to the people around us. What is your ideal and how do you go about enacting it in your day? Do you th- are you conscious of it as you walk through your day? Are you conscious of the effect that your very small actions have in building that larger ideal? You know, one of the things we talked about at, uh, at breakfast this morning is that, uh, you know, one of the things that I really felt or see strongly in our culture is that although we make a lot of noise about women's rights and equality and, and uplift and those kinds of things. I feel like in not so subtle ways, women are the most exploited, big quotes, commodity in our culture. And uh, to consider how, how does that happen? You know, my idea at the table that I wasn't so, so effective at, at expressing was that we can't blame and an and, and, and amorphous entity like the media or the government or society because those things mean such different things for everybody and you can't really define them as entities. They're kind of like Maya. They, they exist, but they don't exist. They have a reality, but not an independent reality. They don't exist without us as individuals, without us as people. And so in working out our ideal... Instead of thinking about the nation's ideal, we think about our ideal. Think about what we're manifesting and what we're building. What aspect of God are we, are we you know, gloriously putting forward in this life that we're living? And in that small part, how are we contributing? You know, if we know that a movie is exploitive of women and we know we shouldn't go see it, or, or that it's not that we shouldn't go see it, who can say that, but you go and you put your $12 in the till, you've added to that ideal. You've, you've contributed to, to the media, to that, immersive, that, that amorphous entity, you know? If, if, if someone you're, if you don't vote, you just get sick of the whole thing, you just don't want to deal with politics at all, you know, and so you don't stand up and somebody wins who's not conducive at all to your ideal. In your independent way, you've contributed. You've laid your leaf on that pile. You've, you've, you've manifested what is happening in the world around you. And so to, take, to, to, to be very conscious, you know, as a woman, as a man who's supportive of women or, or thinks positively, hopefully positively, about the idea of women's rights and women's uplift and, and equality, to consider carefully what ideal are you putting forward in your life and to be conscious of that at a very low level. Why at a very low level? Because that's all we are in charge of individually. We're all, you know, it's like that. There's a wonderful story, I think it's in the Ramayana, when Rama is trying to build the bridge out to Sri Lanka and in the animated series, I don't know if it's part of the real story or not, but there's a little chipmunk that basically goes and rolls in the dirt and then runs and to the end of the bridge and shakes his, the dust off his coat and then runs back and <laughs> does it over and over and over again. 
and he gets rewarded. I mean, you know, he gets rewarded by by Rama. Gets a great compliment because he's understanding his own limits and not being discouraged by that. He's understanding that his part is almost insignificant and almost wouldn't matter, and yet he's putting everything he's got into that. And so to live like that, to consider your ideal, you know, consider what you're putting forward as a woman, as a man, toward this ideal of this morning, women's, uh, or feminism in Vedanta, the place of women in the world. Are you building an ideal that, that you agree with, <laughs> you know? Are you living consciously enough that you're actually building something that you, that you yourself agree with, you know? Are you putting your money into the things that you think are proper, that, that are a proper ideal, that are a helpful ideal? Are you uh, putting your relationships in to, to that, your efforts in conversations, you know? When you hear things said in the office that aren't conducive to women's rights, that aren't respectful toward women as co-workers, you know, or that, that are hurtful to you as a woman, you know, what are you doing? Is that part of your ideal? If you say nothing and just swallow, You've contributed to that situation. You've contributed to that problem, you know, whether it's fear or that feeling of smallness, you know, it has to, it has to be pushed forward. You have to become conscious and you have to make sure that you become aware of the ideal that you're contributing to, the ideal that becomes these amorphous dependent institutions you know, of society, of workplace environments, of corporate America, of media at large, you know, to pay attention to your, your sometimes chipmunk-sized contributions, that if you make them consciously and, and with that motivation, that proper motivation that's true to your ideal, you will be rewarded for, you know. <laughs> I think the chipmunk got its stripes on the back that way or something. Anyway... <laughs> You get your stripes. So consciously, consciously manifest your ideal. Determine what it is. Determine what you think it should be. And live accordingly, down to the smallest efforts and the smallest ideals. And then put it in its proper arena. This is a this is a ground this is a groundwork rule that I'm going to talk about here next, for having these kind of conversations, so that you don't get red-faced and, <laughs> you know, and angry and say things that you know immediately afterwards when you're alone that you have to go apologize for, to just to be level-headed. He says, Takur, um, Vivekananda goes on to say, all growth, all progress, well-being, or degradation is but relative. It refers to a certain standard, and each man to be understood has to be referred to that standard of his perfection. You see this more markedly in nations, what one nation thinks good might not be so regarded by another nation. Cousin marriage, for example, is quite permissible in this country, but in India it is illegal. Not only so, it would be classified as one of the most horrible incests. Widow marriage is perfectly legitimate in this country, and among the higher castes in India it would be the greatest degradation for a woman to marry twice. So you see, we work out through such different ideas that to judge one people by another's standards would be neither just nor practicable. Therefore, we must know what the ideal is in that nation and what it has raised before itself. 
When speaking of different nations, we start with the general idea that there is one code of ethics and the same kind of ideals for all races. Practically, however, when we come to judge others, we think what is good for us must be good for everybody. What we do is the right thing. So he's, he's starting the conversation by very tactfully saying we're a little bit hypocritical when we get into these kinds of conversations in the sense that we all agree that there is an ideal. Everybody should have equal rights. Everybody should be treated equally as a human being and have equal opportunities to advance and to learn and to grow and to be educated, you know. But then when it comes down to, to the particulars of it, we start, the attachments start to show. The things that are a little bit self-serving start to come out, you know, and we grasp onto it. Our idea, what we think is best for us, is best for everybody, and that's the way that is. You know, one of my uh, things that I was thinking about this weekend, not this weekend, but this week, and actually quite some time now, is the plight of, Mus of Muslim women, uh, you know, in, in the Middle East, and, and how, you know, certainly the media <laughs> here has nothing positive to say about that. You know, these poor women that are this way and that way, and it has to be this way and that way. And occasionally, you get a, a peep through of, of like a Muslim woman, woman who says that, that she chooses to wear that, that she wants to wear that, and she sees that as an expression of her as a person and her value. And, uh, you know, of course, as a Western man, I'm, I'm like, God, how far did they have to go to find that woman, <laughs> you know, to, <laughs> to find that? But that's not fair, is it? It's not fair. And it's not that I'm going to endorse one side or the other in that conversation, but I'm going to do what Swamiji does here in the next paragraph. I'm going to say that if you were to give a woman a choice between wearing that or having to see herself fully exposed on the front of a magazine cover every time she goes to the grocery store, you know, to, to be ogled, which one does she want? Can you honestly say that, that, that the woman being exploited on the magazine cover is in a better situation than the woman who's, who has, you know, chosen, we'll, we'll assume, chosen to wear the burqa? Of course, that matter of choice, again, is part of a conversation, a different conversation. But we're talking about the ideals, you know. So when we approach an ideal like this, it has to be deeper than saying this and not this. It's, it's a nuanced conversation that we have to rely on women to clarify, you know. That's why your voice is needed, and that's where this sense of empowerment has to happen. You have to understand that it's your voice. You know, when you buy a, a, a magazine, now I've never bought a Cosmopolitan magazine or something, but the things on the cover, what they advertise that they talk about, to me seem... <laughs> I'm going to get in so much trouble. <laughs> they, seem, they seem so insipid to me. You know, like, really? Is that really, is that really the level of problems that we're dealing with, you know, as a culture? You know, and uh, to be fair, we can take the sports magazines too, you know, rip dabs in six days. You know, it's like, you, you take that as a measure, it's like, is, are either one of those magazines for, for the men's magazines for men and the certainly women's magazines for women? Is that really our ideals? Is that is that really what we're going for as even as people, let alone as a country, but as individuals? And yet, those magazines wouldn't be there if we weren't 
putting our vote for them, spending our, God, they're really expensive these days, like six and nine dollars for a magazine. I remember they were 25 cents. Anyway, you're putting your vote in. You know, you're even, <laughs> so I remember, you know, I, I'm kind of ashamed in a way because I know like in, when I was a kid, I was really into Star Magazine. I mean, it's the trash of trash tabloids. I mean, it really, it's just absolute drivel. There's nothing important in there. And my mom would bring one back from the grocery store every time she went shopping because she knew that I liked it. And I would. I would just take that thing and just flip. I loved it. I was so into it. And, you know, looking back on that, it's hilarious, first of all. But second of all, I thought, wow, look what I did Look what I was doing. You know, I was a kid, of course, but even as a kid, you know, I wasn't my, I wasn't challenged at all by my mother or my father on that. It was subtly encouraged. I don't think my mother even had any idea what that magazine was. She just knew I liked it, and she loved me and wanted me to have it. But there's a level of thinking and a level of awareness for these issues that has to be developed in us. You know, so that we understand when we when we put these little votes out there that they have a huge effect. They build the media. They build the evening news. You know, they build the front page of the newspaper. So to be aware of that and to live accordingly and to know that in that conversation, there is not one absolute. Well, not so much that there may be one absolute overlying charge of truth, but if there is to apply it equally to yourself <laughs> as you are to the other people you know that are being represented as the other in the conversation. So this, <laughs> this morning in this conversation, as we go forward in this over the next couple of weeks, if, if anybody does want to talk about it, to remember that, and actually not just in this conversation, but almost any controversial conversation that you get into, remember first, it's relative. This is a relative world that we live in. You know, a warm room is not warm to everybody in it. <laughs> you know, I used to live the Swami in San Francisco. He used to keep his room at 82 degrees. I would open that door and that heat rolling out. And I'd, <laughs> you know, choking on it. So it's a relative world we live in. So don't cling too tightly, but develop that awareness and that empathy for the conversation so that it always starts and stays in respect and in honor as we collectively manifest an ideal, a higher truth, a better magazine, a better front page to the newspaper. So in trying to do that, I thought also uh, that probably be good for me to, to check in with some, some women about this topic, about what to do. So the first thing I actually did was pull all of the uh, women off of my uh, email contacts list, and I sent out a very wide-reaching uh, email saying, hey, I've been asked to talk about this subject and I don't know anything about it. What should, according to you, what is important for me to say? And it was very interesting because out of like 14 emails that I put out, I got two responses. <laughs> so I got two responses and I thought, oh, that in itself is an interesting idea to me. It's like, how engaged, how important is this topic to people? How, you know, how engaged are we really in this? Uh, actually, I got, I did get, I did actually get four responses, to be fair. One response came back with, 
uh, from someone, you know, <laughs> who just said, well, what is feminism? And uh, I was like, well, that was my question, really. That's, <laughs> that was what I was hoping would be your job to, to tell me. So I didn't really engage in that because I didn't want to en engage at, at that long level, that kind of, that way. So I didn't follow that, that lead. And, uh, and uh, the, the second one <laughs> wrote, wrote and said, gee, what a great question. And I really uh, always knew that you were such a champion for the underdog and that you really cared about these issues. And this is a really big one for me, and it's something I've really been thinking about a lot. And uh, so I'm going to take the time to think about it, and I'll write you, uh, I'll write you um, my, my ideas and I never got that second. <laughs> I never got that second letter. So hopefully it was so important that she's still writing it, and uh, I can I can get it for part two, part two. But the two that I got back uh, were very interesting because to me they struck me as both a complete answer in and of themselves, and yet after I had read both of them, they seemed like they were a complement to each other, like a totally. Not a not totally different vantage point, but a very different approach. The first one wrote me and said, Swami, to me, this is the feminine ideal. The description of Holy Mother by Swami Vareshwarananda, when he said, one who has an embodiment of humility, of kindness, of love, whose very look revealed a heart lacerated at the suffering of humanity, whose love knew no difference between a saint and a sinner. Holy Mother is my ideal. Okay. So I tried to pass some litmus tests with this idea of Holy Mother, this woman of absolute compassion, the woman who said things like, I tell you one thing, if you want peace of mind, do not find fault with others. See your own faults and learn to make the world your own. No one is a stranger. The whole world is your very own. And I thought, well, there's an ideal for womanhood that is particular to womanhood, I think. Now, this is where I'm going to get into trouble in the conversation because I'm going to say, or suggest, I'm not going to say, but I'm going to suggest that men and women, of course, are human beings and, of course, deserve equality and, of course, should have equal opportunities and be presented with the same uh, tools for being exposed to noble ideas, and so we can work these things out. But I'm not one that has ever bought into the idea of men and women being the same, and that equality means that we just treat, just approach everybody the same. Before anybody throws anything. <laughs> this is why I think that way, because I have a mom and a dad, and I have very different feelings toward them. And I have found through my life that most people have very different feelings toward their mom and their dad, even though they're a combination of the same va of values and ideas, that there is something about a mom that can express love and reassurance. And of course, I'm talking about a healthy family and healthy relationships. I'm not talking about the unfortunate situations. But as a general rule of thumb, there's something very beautiful about moms as an ideal, that there's something lovely that a mom has with her children that a father, I'm going to say, can't have. He can't approach it, 
certainly. And and there are please and please know that I'm not creating two boxes and saying everything has to fit in these boxes. I know there are exceptions and I know that there's bell curves, you know, for men who can be great mothers and for women who can be great fathers. Totally fine. I'm not pushing an agenda. I'm saying there's a woman, there's an ideal for uh, women uh, and for the empowerment of women that comes through Holy Mother. And this idea of making the whole world uh, your mother. Now, it's very interesting because Swamiji, when he talked about this, he said, uh, in the West, the, the woman is wife. That's the ideal for women in the West. The idea of womanhood is concentrated there as the wife. To the ordinary man in India, the whole force of womanhood is concentrated in motherhood. In the Western home, the wife rules. In the Indian home, the mother rules. So that means that if you're if the mother's mother is there, she runs the house. <laughs> but it means a lot more than that because of what the ideals associated with each of those aspects of womanhood are. You know, in, in the idea of the wife, I don't think he was just talking about that relationship. It's about how men see women in this culture as sexual partners, if we're talking about wives, you know, that most of the exploitation in this culture comes from a sexual uh, initiation, a perception. You know, you look at the ideals, you know, of this uh, of poor Caitlyn Jenner. Now I'm really in trouble. Uh, you know, he was a, a man. She, he was at that time. He was a man for his life. And when he was on the cover of a magazine, he was in athletic gear, and it was always about his achievement as a runner, as a person. He decided that his gender was female. The first thing they did was take his clothes off and put them on the cover of a magazine in a, in a bustier and hair and facelift and the whole nine yards. Nothing about his accomplishments as a person anymore. No other aspect to him except how good he looked at 65. And look at all of it you can stomach, you know. Look at all of it. The very first thing that they did. So Swamiji saw that. Even back in our Victorian era of our culture where most of, the, most of us look back and they're like, oh my God, we were so conservative back then. Even in that time, he looked at it and he saw very clearly where we were going with our ideal. He saw very clearly where this was going to end up, that this, you know, that was what we were embodying and that's where we were going to go. So he says in the West, that's, that's become the ideal for woman, for womanhood, wife. And with that ideal, it's highly sexualized. Very lots of concern for how long, young you look, for how beautiful you are, for how skinny you are. You know, uh, and people are judged that way. I mean, you know, <laughs> God, I mean, it's, it's not, we don't even hide it at this point. You know, if, if, a, if, a, if a female uh, politician gets up there and is too masculine or, you know, didn't put her makeup on or you can know they're going to talk about it. <laughs> you know, you know if a guy gets up there with his hairs messed up or he gets up there and he's got a sweaty shirt on, Nothing. <laughs> They're not going to deal with that at all. And so, again, it's, it's this idea. Our ideals are composed of small things. And they're these, big, these big ideals that we represent as a people are engaged and promoted by our small contributions to them. You know, when we engage in those kind, kind of conversations, 
when you buy <laughs> buy that magazine, you know, with with Caitlin on it, yeah, there's probably lots of reasons to buy that magazine besides <laughs> that have nothing to do with her how she dressed on the cover. But nonetheless, when you contribute to that kind of conversation in these small ways that really don't have much integrity to them, and you probably you would probably you probably laugh when you do it. You know, you kind of like chuckle. Oh, well, I want to read that. Put it aside. Because that's how you kind of lubricate the, 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 the low-level conflict that you might feel inside with that. So it's something to think about. Perhaps we could use more of this ideal as woman, as, as mother. You know, that, that eliminates that sexualization, that objectification. And it puts a lot of emphasis on, on character and on virtue and on service and of, on compassion, which are the things that matter in a person's life, which are the things that people will talk about when that person dies. You know? <laughs> it's like people, people will tell you, gee, you're looking really good at 50. Nobody walks up to a coffin and says, wow, you look really good for being dead. <laughs> you know, it's like that's not what you talk about. So obviously that's not important. Obviously that's not one of the values that we really care about. So perhaps as a woman, maybe see yourself that way as the mother of everyone. And actually, Vivekananda is going to lay it out very clearly. I wrestled so much with whether I was going to bring this up or not because it's so contrary uh, to, to, the, to the ideal of womanhood that, that, I, that I'm growing up with or, or see generated in our culture. To all women, every man save her husband should be as her son. To all men, every woman, save his own wife, should be as his mother. When I look about me and see what you call gallantry, my soul is filled with disgust. Whoa. Gallantry is one of the things Westerners love to hold up as being the right way to treat women. And it filled Swamiji with disgust. Okay, so let's follow this up. Not until you learn to ignore the question of sex and to meet on a ground of common humanity will your women really develop. Until, they are, until then, they are playthings for you and nothing more. All this is the cause of divorce. Your men bow low and offer a chair, but in another breath they offer compliments. They say, Madam, how beautiful your eyes are. What right do they have to say this, how dare a man venture so far and how can you women permit it? Such things develop the less noble side of humanity. They do not tend to nobler ideals. Whoa. <laughs> Whoa. Amazing stuff right there. Until you learn to ignore the question of sex and to meet on a ground of common humanity, Will your, only then will your women really develop. He was disgusted by gallantry because he could see what the motivation of gallantry was. It had a sexualized ideal behind it. So much so that, I mean, look. <laughs> when he, he says you, you put a man and a woman, a young man and a young woman in a room alone, and he says not, not a full minute will pass before he is telling her what lovely eyes she has. Okay, now, 
that didn't bother me until I started thinking about it. And now that I've started thinking about it, I'm really troubled by it because of so many things. One, in our culture, that's the nice thing to do. In our culture, guys, men, we're told you should compliment women on how they look. If the scarf looks nice, you should say that scarf looks nice. Swamiji was disgusted by that because he could see the objectification that it implied. That I was judging your appearance and that I was making a comment, being so bold as to make a comment, a comment giving any importance to my opinion about how you're dressed, let alone to enforcing any, any ideal of, what, of how you are dressed, as being something that I should be concerned with. But the thing that blows me away is what woman doesn't want to be told that she looks beautiful? And I was like, wow, we've got a really deep problem going on here. We've got a really big issue happening here that in order to see this ideal of motherhood, you know, where he says we have to learn to ignore the question of sex altogether for anybody to be able to develop. We have to come to a common. He says, until you can, you cannot claim to have a common ground of humanity because you will all just begin to view each other like playthings. He said this a hundred years ago. And all I had to do was think about a single walk that I took through the, the Union District in San Francisco on a Saturday evening to understand that this is exactly how we've come to treat each other. <laughs> you know, when I looked at the, the, the girls on the, and, and their presentation of self as they were you know, flittering down the sidewalks to the bars, and I looked at the groups of guys and their laughing vulgarity and talking about them and the flirtatious responses coming back, Swamiji is telling us a truth here, and it's a tough one to swallow, that gallantry is not gallant. Gallantry is exploitive because you are valuing the wrong thing in that person and making the wrong assumptions about what you should be noticing about that person. And as a woman, by wanting that, you are buying your enslavement. You are purchasing your objectification. That is, that is such a huge, huge, huge issue for us. Regardless of what I thought we were doing as a country for human rights, women's uplift, to what I think this week as to what we're doing about women's uplift, women's rights. And it's horribly painful because I see how deep a wound this is, and how blinded we are to it as a culture, as a nation, if you want, but more importantly, as individuals. What we're accepting and what we're promoting by these simple, small, chipmunk-sized dust contributions to an ideal that will fail us, that will fail us in the long run. We should not think that we are men and women, but only that we are human beings, born to cherish and to help one another. No sooner are a young man and a young woman left alone than he pays compliments to her, and perhaps before he takes a wife, he has courted 200 women or so. Bah! 
If I belonged to the marrying set, I could find a woman to love without all of that. <laughs> There's Swamiji. That's his ideal for the relationships between men and women. Not this gallantry idea, not this chivalry idea, not this, objective, not this thing that will end in enslavement and objectification. But his ideal is that we begin to see each other as human beings born to cherish and to help one another. Not to enjoy each other. <laughs> as things, you know, as whatever, as pleasures. But to think about each other in a way that we cherish each other's existence, that we lived to help each other, to lift each other up. And this cannot be done if this idea of the, of, of the sexuality remains a driving force in the relationships between men and women on the day-to-day -day basis. Now, it's appropriate in the marriage. He, he makes that exception. He says a woman should see every man except her husband as her son. And the man should see every woman except his wife as, as his mother. That that is the way, that is the way to women's empowerment. That's the way to Vedantic feminism which actually is the way to perfection for all of us. We will all do much better with that. So how do we get to this place? Well, I don't think I actually read the second letter. That was the ideal of mother as mother, uh, women as mother. There was a second letter that I got from uh, a woman. She's a school teacher. I'll read you the whole letter, and this presents uh, the complement to that ideal, which kind of fills it out in a nice way. Uh, at first, I thought they were two different ideas, but I began to understand, like I said, that they were complements to each other, that they filled in the missing spaces. She says, Dear Swami C., it's always a pleasure to hear from you. Your request definitely made me think. My initial response was that I didn't have anything to say about it. I thought that was curious, too. I was like, how could a woman have nothing to say about the state of women in relation to Vedanta or the Vedantic idea? But she said, then I realized that there's a really good reason that I don't have anything to say about feminism and Vedanta. Vedanta is about the part of me that is not defined by my gender, not defined by my race or my social status. It's about who I am. So I really don't pay much attention to the gender issues in Vedanta. And she puts in parentheses, and you'd have to kind of know the San Francisco Center to get this, but she says, I think the whole Swami slash Prabhajika thing is, is a curiosity, but I think the details are mostly cultural. And she goes on to say, what really matters to me is that these teachings take me beyond all of that, beyond body consciousness, beyond the physical, psychological concerns. Swami Prabhudananda always related to me from a genderless place, and I never had any sense of my gender around him, or at the worships, or when teachings were moving me deeply, or when I'm meditating. I love that. I'm so grateful for that. There are enough factors in life that make a person self-conscious that are limiting. I love the opportunity and the encouragement to be self-conscious, with a capital S, and expansive. And I feel that way at the temple, with the devotees and with the monastics. What an enormous blessing. What a gift to be seen for who you are and not what your body is. 
Not sure if this is useful, but here it is. Hope you are well, happily busy, challenged and nourished. Love. Okay. (laughs) So she takes it to that highest ideal. How are we going to escape this idea of the sexual, sexualization of each other, of seeing each other developing this idea of, of plaything or as entertainment? How are we going to foster respect for one another? How are we going to rise above complimenting or just simply getting up and giving a seat to you know, each other? How are we going to take this to a meaningful level? Because Swami says... In India, among women may be found such character, such a spirit of service, such affection, such compassion, such contentment and reverence as I could not find anywhere else in the world. Just as your ideal is, so shall you be. If your ideal is mortal, if your ideal is of this earth, so shall you be. If your ideal is matter, matter you will be. Behold, our ideal is the spirit. That alone exists. Nothing else exists. And like him, we live forever. Such an explanation of the authority of ethics appeals no more to the highest of the world's thinkers. They, this idea of, of do's and don'ts as a series of ethics. He's saying that, you know, in this... <laughs> we're changing gears here. This idea that uh, this lower thinking, you know, of instead of having this unifying principle, having these ideas of do's and don'ts, the way to treat women is to, you know, be, uh, uh, you know, deferential to them and pull out the chair for them and, you know, compliment them about the way they look or how nice they smell or, you know, whatnot, bringing them things to flatter them or say flattering things to them. You know, these, this, this, these, these ethics of gallantry, you know, in this context of conversation, these, these limited ideas of right and wrong, he's saying that, that the modern world doesn't want those anymore. People are asking why too much. They don't want this. They don't want all of that. They want something more than that. And he's saying, and there is that eternal sanction to be found, but it is found only in the infinite reality that exists in you, that exists in me, and in all, in the self, in the soul. The infinite oneness of the soul is the eternal sanction of all morality, that you and I are not only brothers or sisters. Every literature-voicing man's struggle toward freedom has preached that for you, but that you and I are really one. This is the dictate of Indian philosophy. This wonderful idea of the sameness and omnipresence of the supreme soul has to be preached for the amelioration and elevation of the human race here as elsewhere. Wherever there is evil and wherever there is ignorance and want of knowledge, I have found out by experience that all evil comes relying upon differences and that all good comes from faith in equality in the underlying sameness and oneness of things. This is the Vedantic ideal. To have the ideal is one thing, and to apply it practically to the details of daily life is quite another thing. Quite another thing. So how do we approach an ideal of women as... as (laughs) 
so paternalistic even to say, how do we approach the ideal of women as equal? <laughs> how do we approach the real, this reality by seeing that reality, by understanding soul in each other, so that we can see each other like Kay sees herself when she's at the temple. She's not a, a, not a gender. She's not limited by a body. And she's not treated as such. She's not treated as such. To have that ideal, you know, to look, to look at the, the men in your office as your sons. If they get one whiff of that kind of relationship... <laughs> the sexuality of that relationship is going to die real fast. <laughs> you know, those other those other things are there. And for the men to treat the women around you with the respect that you show your mother, that you don't say things in the break room about them that you wouldn't say about your mom, to have the same respect for them as individuals that you have for your mother and treat them accordingly, then if they were trying to meet you at a different level, they will be inspired to meet you at a higher level. That is how we cherish each other. That's how we live as human beings to lift each other up, to encourage one another. That's Vedantic feminism, to see that oneness in everyone, to know that it's not just like you, that it is you, looking through a different pair of eyes, having access to a different style of body, but that it is your soul, the same infinite being, sat-chit-ananda, love, existence, intelligence, absolute, and to begin to treat and see each other accordingly. Then whatever may be the measure of your success, you will have the satisfaction that you have lived, that you have worked, and that you have died for a great cause. In the success of this cause, howsoever brought about, is centered the salvation of humanity, both here and hereafter. St. Teresa wrote a wonderful poem about this process. <laughs> Just these two words that God spoke changed my life. Enjoy me. What a burden I thought I had to carry. A crucifix, a cross as he did. But love once said to me, I know a song. And would you like to hear it? Laughter came from every brick in the street and from every pore on my body and from the sky itself. After a night of prayer, he changed my life when he sang, Enjoy Me. <laughs> There's a lot of work to be done in this. This ideal is going to be very difficult for us to achieve even on a small scale, because the environment that we live in, the places we're only one, you know, <laughs> most of us scatter across the four winds at the end of these lectures. And you're, you're a force of one out there battling to see, the, to see the world as yourself and to be seen as, as that oneness in their eyes also.
but to take that not as a burden, you know, not as the not as the difficult and and seemingly almost impossible task in the face of really how deep this issue is and how deep this problem is, but not to forget that it's fun. <laughs> It'll be fun to sit there and go to work tomorrow morning and to see the men in the office as your sons and make a game of that, treat them like your sons, and to go to work tomorrow and see the women in the office as your mother. It'll be fun. Treat them like your mother. See how different the atmosphere is after a week of that. See how much different your relationships with each other in that office will be at the end of a week of that. And know that Swamiji knew what he saw was right. Knew what he saw was the truth and challenged us accordingly.